Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where Pastor Lauren Regeer opens God's Word each week to provide us with biblically-based teaching that helps you meet life head-on. Thank you for joining us, and may your hearts be blessed as God's Word is taught. And now, here is Pastor Lauren Regeer. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll begin reading in verse 9 in just a moment, I encourage you to Consider this morning moral purity within the church. This is, of course, a sensitive topic, and I understand that, but God places it right here in chapter 6 and verse 7. We'll talk about this. Paul addresses it. He doesn't skip around it. He uh, firmly addresses the need for moral purity within the church. I I do think that it is amazing that we are living in a time uh, that I, I really think we, in a sense, are swimming upstream as Christians in a downstream world. On the plane, I was able to go to uh, up to uh, Milwaukee on the plane and then all over to Maranatha, where I was able to spend some time with board members of Baptist World the front part of the week and uh, sat beside a boy on the way back uh, to Atlanta from Milwaukee who was coming to Fort Bend. First stint in the Army, he was just out of high school, and he was uh, fearful. It was his first plane tri- uh, trip ever, and so he was. the Lord put him providentially beside me, and you could tell he was nervous just as I sat down beside him. He was just shaking all over, and, uh, but we had a, a great talk, able to share some principles from the Word about what true belief is, and we had a great flight, and as we came in, descended into uh, Atlanta Airport, if you are um, much you fly much, you know that I guess just recently they have lit up the new uh, carport. That's probably not the proper name for it, where all the cars come through, and it's all lit up, and you can see it from the sky. You can see it as you pull in to travel. It's lit up with the rainbow colors, and he said he was so amazed by that. It's beautiful. Said, what does that stand for? I said, well, that's uh, Delta's way of promoting something that God does not, the, the, really the alternative lifestyle, which is not alternative in God's eyes, it's an abomination. And so uh, here we are promoting in Atlanta for all the world to see, especially those coming in by air and leaving by air, what God does not promote or endorse. We are living in a world, I don't know if you noticed this, that's just pouring out filth and corruption when it comes to morality. Paul has already addressed this in chapter 5 with one in the church that absolutely was living in, in sin and not a bit ashamed about it. And Paul takes that topic on in chapter 5 and he continues with the idea of moral purity and its essential uh, quality in the life of a believer in chapter 6. Let's pray together and see what God has for us today beginning in verse 9. Father, thank you again for the privilege of preaching the word. Thank you that it is a transcending book. That, that means it's simply true in every generation, for every people group, on every continent, and in every church. Lord, the call to us that only the pure in heart will see God. Lord, I pray that we would uh, take this call to moral purity seriously. Lord, we're living in a world where it seems everything is going in a direction of moral corruption. You, yet you've called the church to be the light, the salt, in a time where it's so needed, and so I pray, Lord, that we personally, then we as a church, would shine brightly in a dark culture, a dark time, and I pray that we would be in our hearts, uh, in our practice, pure in heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Help us, we pray today, in Jesus' name, amen. It has been said 
it's not the water outside the boat that's the trouble. It's the water that gets inside the ship that sinks it. In a real sense, that's true of our hearts in terms of purity. Uh, How serious, you might ask, is sexual sin within the church today? One mission board uh, reports that 80% of their applicants voluntarily indicate that they battle pornography. Two out of five, we're told, within the church context are habitual porn addicts visiting immoral websites, immodest websites, Continually, One seminary professor says this, We no longer ask our incoming students if they are struggling with porn, same-sex attractions, and other forms of moral failure. We simply assume that they are. Our question is now, how serious is your addiction? Harry Schomburg, a pastor who has worked with men, who for, worked with men for 20 years who struggle with this issue, He reports this, in my experience of counseling thousands of men struggling with sexual sin, over half are pastors and missionaries. So this sin is non-discriminatory. It affects every tier of the social scale or whatever you want to say, every compartment of life, male, female. All of us are tempted to stray, to go prone to wonder from the God we love. He went on to say that in his experience, this is interesting, in his experience, only 2% came to him voluntarily for help. 98% were forced to come to him because they were found out. What does this tell you about moral impurity? It loves to hide. It loves privacy. It loves secrecy. And yet, It is a moral abyss which not only the Corinthians lived in, in a city whose very name meant to fornicate, but we too in America live in a society saturated with seductions to sin sexually. And you know, it would be easy, again, just like last week about people suing one another to skip this passage, but I think God puts it here on purpose, amen? God wants a pure church. One pastor commented, I've hid behind the fact that our church was doing well, growing. I figured God didn't care. So while I was preaching against adultery, I was in a six-month affair. The Bible says something about our hearts. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, God knows it. The devil knows of our propensity to sin in the area, area of sexual and moral failure. And so it is one of his greatest tools in the toolbox, the perversion of morality. He finds it his favorite vice. Advertising today uses models who are immodest to incite us to notice them, the notice me factor. And all sin, not just this sin, but sin first wants to be noticed then embraced, and its final goal is to put a knife through our hearts. Sin, the Bible says in James chapter 1 and verse 15, sin when it is finished brings forth death. Make no mistake about it. The pretty pictures you see of people dressed inappropriately in the internet or billboards, wherever, magazines, are not meant just to get your attention. The devil means them to kill you to bring you to a place of enslavement. 
And so it's important to know the serious nature of this. John MacArthur states this about sexual sin. He says, sexual immorality corrupts the body like no other sin. At the deepest human level, it is more destructive, he says, than alcohol, far more destructive than drugs, even more destructive than crime. Its implications are not only ruinous to the individuals involved, but have a far-reaching effect on families, children, spouses, and congregations. So welcome to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And let's begin reading in verse 9. Remember the catalog of folks that were coming to Christ out of a very immoral lifestyle in Corinth, a city known in that time and age as being one of the most immoral in all the known world. He says, Know ye not, verse 9, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, and here goes the list. It's not a pretty picture. Adulterers, the effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, thieves, covetous drunkards, revilers. We went through this list a little bit last time we met. None of these shall inherit the kingdom of God. Then comes this wonderful verse, verse 11. And such, past tense, were some of you, but ye are what? You're washed in the precious blood of the Lamb. You've been sanctified. There's hope. God coming into your life can make a change. And you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. I love the hopefulness of the Scriptures. This city, whose very name was was equated with fornication and moral deviancy, Sin City slash Corinth, knew the change that was coming because of the gospel. People in that city, given to the trade of religious prostitution, were coming to Christ by the power of God were being saved and the the chains were being broken from this slavery of moral impurity. Romans 6 is a corollary passage to this. You don't need to turn there, but let me read the verses Romans 6, 17 and 18. But God be thanked that once you were the servants or slaves of sin, chained to this habit of sin, but now you have obeyed from the heart the form of doctrine. What is he saying? The preaching of the truth or the standard of biblical teaching. You've obeyed it from the heart which was delivered to you, being then made, I love this, being then made free. From sin, glory, you became the servants or the slaves of righteousness. Did you know that uh, when you get saved, God gives you, this is a wonderful truth, when you get saved, that is you put your trust trust and faith in the finished work of Christ alone. When you get saved, there's there's a transition in your heart. God moves in. You get a new identity, a new nature. You're still trapped in a body that knows how to sin and sin well. But God has given you his new nature, his power, his new desires, his new direction. That's why he says to those who are getting saved, such were some of you. You no longer go under that title anymore of adulterer and so on, that whole list of corrupt moral deviance and perversion. He says, no. God is in you. Now you can say, I'm a Christian. (laughs) I've been born again. No man can see the kingdom of God except he's born again. And you're now part of the church. And God has put in you a new inclination, a new desire, a new hope, 
a new destiny, a new name. Yes, you still live in a sin-soaked culture, but God has given you victory. Victory is promised. If you remember where we were last week, they, the Corinthians, were turning uh, to, to to the world's thinking and the world's philosophy about settling problems in the church. They were suing one another. In the early part of chapter 6, Paul says, enough already with that. Stop that. Think like Jesus. Stop going to the world's courts to solve your personal problems within the church. Christ is the answer. And the answer is one that's not known to the world. How can a, a judge in the world who doesn't know Christ solve your problems spiritually? Because all problems truly have that basis. They are spiritual heart problems. They don't have spiritual wisdom. So be kind, he says, essentially to one another. Take the offenses of your brothers and sisters. Forgive as Christ has forgiven you. And then he turns now in chapter Six to his attention, his attention to moral problems. How is the Christian, I ask you this question this morning, to respond to a culture that simply excused themselves? They saw their bodies in that world and time and culture as, as, uh, as evil, and therefore they excused themselves from uh, whatever they did in the body, had no consequence to their eternity, their spiritual life, their real person, because the body could not be controlled, simply could not. They threw up their hands and said, it's just impossible. So let's just do, this was the common thought, let's just do what comes natural. It's impossible to control the body. Maybe God will just look the other way, so be it, c'est la vie. And we've read the, uh, the verses here before us. And I think we need to continue reading in verse 12, and let's read through the end of the chapter. Such were some of you, verse 11, all things are lawful to me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Paul will give us as church members, as part of the body of Christ, some real insight about breaking free. Meats for the belly. This was one of the common phrases in the day, meats for the belly, the belly for meats. Food's for the stomach, and the stomach's for food. Going on to say the appetites, just whatever they are, should be fed. But God shall destroy both it and them, food and the body. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord, and God hath both raised up the Lord, and will also raise us up by his own power. Verse 15, know ye not, three times again in the end of this chapter, we see that phrase used, know ye not. Were you absent in class? (laughs) Were Were you not listening when I was there before, Corinthians? Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. This is the strongest language possible in the Greek. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body, for two, saith he, shall be one flesh, there's a unique harmony and unity, composite unity in marriage or in the act of sex. He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? This is a great conclusion to this chapter. Know ye not that your body is no longer yours. It's the temple of the Holy, Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your 
own. For ye are bought with a price. What price is that? The precious blood, perfect blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, glorify God in your body, not just in your spirit, but your body, which are God's. It's a complete package, your soul, body, spirit. All must be protected purely. Great verses to end this chapter. You're a purchased property. No longer your own, but you're paid for by the blood of Christ. He controls you. Well, some principles today to take home with us. Number one, in terms of breaking free, our prior description must not be our present pattern. You see that? We've already looked at those verses a little bit. Verses 9 and 10 and 11. That big list of those ugly sins that uh, were a part of the fabric of Corinth. No longer are you that way. Uh, What do you suppose Paul is trying to say to us? He's saying this, you have been newly natured. You've been washed, sanctified, justified. So you are no longer identified as out of Christ. Now you are in Christ. You have a new Guide within you. The Spirit of God is living within your body. You are the host for the God of all gods, the King of kings. He's living in you. That's what happens when you get saved. God moves in. And that's why we can use the past tense, although we still struggle with sin. Such were some of you. Does that mean, Pastor, that we never sin, never have a lustful thought after we're saved? No, that's not true. We all struggle with sin and will all of our lives. I talked to a pastor during his 80s, and I was a much younger man at the time. I don't think 80 is so old anymore. But I was in my 40s, and I said, be honest with me. Do you still struggle with lustful thoughts in your now near 80? He smiled and says, I'm still in the battle, brother, but one day this body's going to be glorified. Won't fight that battle anymore. All of us, if we were honest, Fight the struggle with this sin called lust. We all do. We care what age you are. So what does it mean such were some of you? Well, you've been saved by the grace of God. You've put your trust in the finished work of what Jesus did for you on the cross. You recognize your ineptitude to save yourself. And bowing before the cross, bowing before the finished work of Christ, the buried, resurrected Savior, you have put your trust in what he did for you. That moment you get saved. Spirit of God put a new nature and you have a new direction, power, desire in life. You don't, it doesn't mean that you do not sin occasionally. We all do. But these scriptures and, uh, remind us that there is a difference. There's a transformation that takes place. And these sinful departures, let me just say this, must not be persistently unholy. If the direction and the desire of your life and your heart is all about sinning, I don't care what the sin is, in this context it's sexual sin. If your desire is all about that all the time and there's no desire for God and there's no compulsion or conviction against sin in your life, you've got to be very careful that what you say matches who you are. 1 John 3 puts it very clear. Clearly, he that committeth sin, and that means in the Greek there, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil or unsaved. For God's seed, those who are saved by his spirit, dwells 
The Spirit of God dwells in him, and he cannot sin or make again or make a practice of sinning because he is born of God. Saved folks have a new compass, new direction, new desire. Doesn't mean there's no desire for sin in our lives, but there's a new compelling direction in life. If we say we're Christians and don't want what God wants, we must not be, by definition, what God uh, or what we say we are. If we say we're Christians, there ought to be a new compulsion to love God, to be around God's people, to do right. Yes, it ought to hurt us when we choose to sin. There ought to be a conviction that grows and a returning to God. But if your life has no sense of conviction and all you want in life is to do wrong, be careful that you do not call yourself born again because you have a new nature and you will respond to the God within you and to the Word of God in ways that are right. Saved people, listen carefully, saved people do not sin as a continual pattern or practice without regret or repentance because there has been a change of heart. That's what Paul says in verses 9, 10, and 11. You were this, not that you're perfect now in a sense of practice, but now you're different. So in terms of prolonged immorality, without any response or remorse or conviction, it's to find yourself believing a lie. I prayed a prayer, so I'm saved, right, pastor? There's been absolutely no change of will, desire, inclination, hunger for God and for God's people, prayer, reading the Bible, change of life. If that is true of you, quit telling yourself a lie. Sound like harsh words, don't they? But isn't it better to be warned now instead of before the judgment, the white throne judgment? You can't hold up. If you're an unbeliever, you can't hold up your decision card at the white throne judgment. Say, see, God, I signed a card. The heart has to be changed, and that is God's work. But the good news is, if you're a sinner and want God's help and change and transformation, ask Him, call upon the Lord, and He will save you. He wants to help you. Transformation starts off, of course, with a new, a new life inside of us. No longer are we are what we were. Secondly, our physical desires must not dominate us. I read some of these verses. It's good to be reminded again. All things, verse 12, are lawful unto me. What does that mean? I can do anything I want to, but all things are not profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any meats for the belly. Again, I mentioned this little uh, cliche in Corinth. Meats for the belly, the belly for meats. The body has a capacity for sexual interaction. So apparently it's another hunger. So just Just live and let live, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord. Our physical desires must not dominate us, and God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his own power. Physical desires may be healthy and legitimate, but they must not master and dominate us. All things are lawful for me. Let's take that at First of all, in the sense of the Jewish mind, they had been just taught that the customary, or excuse me, the the dietary customs of the law were now put in the past. The feast days were no longer important in the sense of the, 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 the church 
and that no longer did they have to go to the temple because God was living in their hearts. And so the worship came from their hearts, was not located in one central place. And so they began to see the Old Testament Mosaic customs vanish away as God brought instruction about the dispensation of grace. But grace doesn't mean a permission to just live the way I want to live. Paul says, don't be dominated by grace does not mean all things sinful. All things out of control are okay for you. Paul wasn't saying that. He isn't saying you're free to do anything wicked and sinful. No. A common saying, all things are lawful to me under grace. I guess grace is just going to cover my continual lifestyle of perversion. We saw that in chapter 5. I guess, hey, it's great. Grace is great, right? And so I'll do whatever I want to do. No. No sin. Well, there's a truth to this. There's a truth to this. And here it is. All of our sins, past, present, and future are under the blood, and Christ will never bring them up against us in a sense of of disqualifying us for heaven. That's the wonderful thing about being in Christ. All of our sins, no matter how what we call big or small sins, they're all covered by the blood. Paul is not excusing an illicit practice, an immoral practice in our lives. You can't just say, I guess, since it's all forgiven, I'm going to live the way I want to live. He's saying, here, no sin is ever profitable, useful, or good, especially sexual sin. We know that no sin can keep us, the true children of God, out of heaven, but no amount of sin is ever useful for us. What a severe toll is paid by the improper use of physical love. It is highly addictive, destructive. It has destroyed homes and marriages, been the cause of death, murders, abortions. There is a proper place, legitimate, healthy, lawful use of sex. God intended that in the garden. He made them male and female and immediately He brought them together in the institution of marriage. That's the safe place. The use of it's beautiful. In fact, wonderful verse in Hebrews chapter thirteen and verse four. It says that the marriage bed is honorable, glorious. God created it and blessed it. The Lord intends for it to be satisfying, unifying, God glorifying within marriage. Now listen carefully, though. Even then, within its proper place, it can become an idol. It can become all you live for. The only proper place for sexual expression is within the context of marriage. But even within marriage, within legitimate bounds, these desires can become idols for those who are brought under its control. We are not to be mastered by any physical drive or appetite. That's the point Paul is making. Desires, even good ones, can get out of control. I read about a lady who, back in the day, collected cabbage patch dolls. Some of you don't even remember that name, but it was a funny-looking doll with a chubby face. She got one, then two, and pretty soon that became a fetish for her. And her whole house 
became full of cabbage patch dolls to the point that they couldn't even live there. Too many dolls in the house. Anything, even good things, can overtake our lives. Well, we get to the third principle. I think this is important to realize, too. Our purpose and design is not for physical gratification. God tells us that. But for spiritual glorification. God purposed you as a believer. We see that in verses 13 and 14. God has made us for himself, your body even, although it's corrupt and will not be redeemed in its current form. And heaven will be glorified, will not have a sin nature, but somehow there will be an identifying factor. The body will be raised incorruptible. We're told that end of 1 Corinthians. So it's important that even our bodies reflect the grace and the glory of God. There's another common Greek cliche in Paul's day. Meats for the body, the bellies for meat, c'est la vie. So whenever the body signaled an appetite or hunger, just feed it. You can't control it. I mentioned it. Feed it. Whenever, however, when the body hungers, take care of it. Feed it on demand. <laughs> and there's a little phrase even today we use. Listen to your body. No, don't. It'll probably lead you astray. Listen to God. Our purpose and design is not for physical gratification, but for heavenly glorification. See the phrase there in verse 13. The body is not for fornication, but for the Lord. Even though you have a capacity for sexual enjoyment, do not let that enjoyment surpass your pleasure in God. No matter if you're single, married, understand that God didn't make you for that sort of pleasure alone. The very discipline, in fact, we, we see different disciplines in the Bible. God calls us to bring our body under the very discipline of fasting. You wonder sometimes, that's a forgotten When's the last time you heard a message on fasting, right? But the very discipline of fasting was to bring your body under so that you could focus on other things. It is the discipline to say no to the flesh because the flesh hates to be crucified and loves to be gratified. Our appetites, even good ones, need to be spirit-controlled. It's not very far away, so turn there to 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 27. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 27. He says this, Paul is speaking again. Uh, he says, I keep under my body. Well, we could change the wording a bit. I keep my body under control and bring it under subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Back to the statistic that I started with. Over half of the thousands of, of men that this one preacher was counseling in this area were preachers and pastors. He says, Paul says, it's so easy. This, this sin is so seductive, so alluring that even I understand the great danger of it. So I keep my body under. Hupopiazo in the Greek. What do you think that means? It means, it's, it's a very strong word. It means I buffet, not buffet, I buffet. Buffet my body. So men, I'll speak to you primarily. This is certainly not a sin just men indulge in, but it really means this. I blacken 
my eye when I am tempted to look at sin. I give you permission, men, when the link pops up, the immodest woman, or that notice me link pops up when someone doesn't have enough clothes on to take your fist and pound yourself in the eye after you click the thing and delete it. That's how serious Paul is about this. And the writer to Hebrews says this, we have not come to the place where we're shedding blood in our battle against sin. We're not very tough on ourselves. What does Paul say, or excuse me, the Lord say in Sermon on the Mount? If there is an eye that you have that's offending you, pluck it out. For it is better to go to heaven maimed than to go to heaven or to go to hell because you're driven along by these seductions and these habits of life. That's how serious God is. Question, how serious are you? Bring it into subjection. Keep your body under. He says, I preach to others, chapter 9, I hope a last analysis that I am not disqualified, set aside, because I've not been able to control my own passions. The body is not made for fornication, but for, verse 13, for the Lord. And the Lord for the body, so your body and how you live in it does matter to God. He will, verse 14, this is a great verse, He will raise it up by His own power from the dead. This time, of course, the resurrection without sin glorified a heavenly man, but your body will share an identity in heaven with the one you have now. We don't know how that works. But you will be known in heaven if you're a believer. And so we will see God having this great hope. The writer John says, having this great hope, we purify ourselves, knowing that we will see God. He will raise us up. Job himself says, I know that I will stand on the earth the last day with Christ. So important to understand this wonderful hope that we get to see God in in our bodies, though glorified and resurrected, made new again. But there's this sense in which we cannot, as they were doing in Corinth, uh, kind of do a disparity or dissection where we take the body and say, so whatever happens with that, it's okay. I give myself a pass, an excuse, because there's no bearing on my spiritual life. Absolutely there is. Be careful about your lifestyle. Number four, our primary deception is to believe sexual sin has no bearing. And I mentioned that on our spiritual lives. Doesn't matter, said one preacher. If I'm looking at dirty pictures, it doesn't matter at all. It doesn't hurt me or anybody else. It doesn't matter where I get my appetite wetted so long as I come home for supper, said one married man. How foolish you are. The Bible is very clear in the verses that ensue that we are to flee, verse 18, fornication, not to try to manage it or excuse it or push it under the rug or to hide Didn't work for Adam and Eve, did it? (laughs) We are to flee fornication, not flirt with it. The seductress whispers in Proverbs 9, 16 through 18, and other places in the book of Proverbs. What a great book to read, especially when you're very, at any age, but when you're young and facing some of the most intense 
temptations in this area of your life. Whoso is simple or foolish, she whispers seductively, let him turn in hither. And as for him that wants understanding, she says to him, stolen waters are sweet, and they are. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But we always have to understand the rest of the story. The Bible goes on there in that passage, but he knoweth not the foolish man driven by his passions alone, knoweth not that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of hell. Wow. Paul says in verses 15 through 18, he says, if those of you, you say that you're sinning with your mind and body not affected in your spirit and God's spirit. Uh, is with you as a believer. Know ye not that your bodies are members of Christ? He's speaking here of the church. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of, the, of a harlot? God forbid. He that's joined to a harlot is one body. For two, saith he, shall be one flesh and heat. But he that is joined to the Spirit is one spirit. Flee, therefore, sexual sin. Every sin that a man doeth is without... Sometimes this is hard for folks to understand this verse. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Here's what the Lord means by all these wonderful verses. God is never, 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 never complicit in our sin. But he is conjoined with us in our spirit. Therefore... Because he is part of the temple, you are taking your sinful private sins, though they may be, and, and really inviting by the fact that he is part of your spirit, part of your, uh, he's moved into your heart and spirit, living, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. He is forced then not to be complicit or to sin, but to observe this. And God is more holy than to observe sin. It is almost, this is, this, this is sacrilegious, right? But the truth is, God doesn't just leave you while you sin, though you leave Him. You understand that? You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So it's almost as if you are having an affair within the confines, thinking physically, of this church. That would be horrible. No matter where you do it, it's horrible. But God, God is bringing this home to us. What? Don't you know that you're a member of God's bride? And that you have an eternal plan that you will stand before Him at the wedding in heaven? Don't you know that as part of the, that I am purifying my church? You are joined by the new birth, that special mystic union of God and His bride. He is in your heart. You are one-spirited with God. So, be very careful. Now, essentially, God, I mentioned this very clearly, who cannot sin, just like the sun, who shines itself, its rays, sometimes on the good and the bad. The sun shines on a pig pen. Did you know that? <laughs> but his sun, the rays of the sun, are not sullied by the pig. Whatever you do in the flesh cannot sully or tarnish, or dirty God, but he cannot leave you 
He's inside of you. I hope the import of what I'm saying is falling on the hearts of all of us. You don't sin in a corner away from God somewhere. He's there. Not sinning with you, but he is conjoined in your spirit. You're the members of God's church by possession, unified with him. To embrace a prostitute, either by mental image or in the flesh, is to prostitute yourself for another lover and with God in the same room. God, in the strongest language, verse 15, says this. He actually slaps the pulpit of heaven. God forbid. In case you were wondering or a bit confused about whether your Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, or social media, virtual girlfriends or boyfriends are okay with God, this is essentially God saying in the strongest language possible, verse 15, God forbid. May it never be. So, point verse 17 is that you are joined with the Lord, one spirit. Will this type of sin keep you out of heaven? If you're truly born again, no. But God hates it. Make no mistake about it. You're joined by the new birth with him. So what's the point? Verse 18, flee it. Run from it. Go away. (laughs) Stop it. Defriend. Turn it off. Delete. Put filters. Run away from a, as you would run away from a poisonous snake. Run for your spiritual life. away from patterns of habitual sin in this area. Ask God to forgive you and then forsake it. Don't put band-aids on the same sin. God will help you to change and grow put off and then put on. What a wonderful way to end this passage. Flee fornication, every sin that a man doeth is without the body. Some commentary is needed here. He that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Peter is not saying in verse 16 especially that uh, if there is a sexual relationship with someone you're not married to outside of marriage that you should marry that person or that you are married in fact to that person. No, he's pointing out the unique quality of this sin. It's a perversion of the unity and intimacy that's only to be shared between married folks. The one flesh union Further expanded in verse 18, sinneth against his own body means to abuse sex outside of marriage is to dishonor your union with God on the, here it is, on the deepest, most unique human level. God, as I mentioned, does not participate in any sin, of course, but God is in a sense conjoined with you in a sense in the fact that He cannot leave your body while you sin. Unique in that it affects the body and the soul like no other sin. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. He that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Then it ends with this. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own For you are bought with a price. You don't control your body. God does. He's purchased you with the precious blood of Christ. And you are to please him in your body 
not just your devotional life where you open up the Bible perhaps and read a few verses. Everything you do is reflective of your walk with the Lord. You are the temple of the Holy Ghost and your body, and your body is God's property. Let's just end with some very practical things. Be transparent if this is something you're struggling with and you're uh, captured by. Be transparent. Uh, uh, This is, one, as I mentioned, a sin that likes privacy. Many who work with those who are captivated by this sin say and understand that you never come out of this without help from someone around you. So bring accountability. Be transparent into your life. Uh, James says, confess your sins one to another and pray one for another. Surround yourself with those that can help you. Number two, beware. Don't be self-deceived. He who continually practices sin is not born again. 1 John 3, 8 and 9. Don't fool yourself. Beware that if you have given yourself to any kind of sin continually, you are in danger of hellfire. I mentioned that earlier, but this is such a a wonderful reminder. Thirdly, be encouraged. Um, sin can be forgiven. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Any sin to forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then understand, be wise, sin is its own detective. I mentioned how, how, how glorious it is to be found out sooner rather than later. Can you imagine carrying this hidden sin all the way, even as a believer, all the way to the Bema Sea, all the way to heaven. Why not clean up now? Why not get right now? Quit hiding. Step into the light as he is in the life and have light and he have fellowship one with another. Your fellowship is hindered. Your service is hindered because you're dirty inside. Step into the light. Be wise. Be careful. And know this, that you're not hiding anything. Sin will be found out. Sin is its own detective. Be sure your sin will find you out. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. And I said already, be encouraged. There's hope in Christ. There's hope in Christ. You can overcome this or any sin. Exposure is so much better than exposure later in heaven. Step into the light. Be wise. Remove all known sources of temptation, virtual or otherwise, that cause you to stumble Fall, do radical surgery. We talked about that verse. Pluck out the sinful element, the areas of temptations, the relationships you have, either virtual or otherwise at work, that are crossing the line so that you can just be pure. Don't run your spiritual life always carrying a fever. There are some, uh, both men and women, who try to sin uh, privately and think it's okay, and it seems as if they're always sin-sick. They're never powerful for God. They're never reaching out because they're always kind of hiding and nursing a temperature, a sickness, a departure from God. Just clean it up and let God have his way in your life. Let the Lord have his way in your life every day. And just keep a short account with God in this area. You are bought with a price, verse 20. Therefore, glorify God, not just in your prayer life, but in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Pastor Lauren Regeer at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you 
and make his face shine upon you.